A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to the 99th episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host. Can you believe it's 99 episodes? That's almost 100, which is triple digits. So we're almost there, but not yet. Next episode. This episode is about the 400-year anniversary of the Pilgrims. That's right. 400 years ago, the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth. They took the Mayflower over here 400 years ago. Sounds like a long time, but kind of not really either. That's crazy. Just 400 years ago. But... We're going to learn about the story, the real Pilgrim story. That's why I have on John Turner. He is the author of a book called They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty. So John, what a good name too, John Turner. Sounds like he could have been on the Mayflower. But uh, we talk about what it was really like. We cover the story you learned in grade school and elementary school of how the pilgrims worked and, and that first Thanksgiving and everything, but we're going to dive down and ex- give the whole story. You kind of got a half-right story. We're going to get the whole story. So let's. I'm going to stop talking here. Let's get into the episode. Here is John Turner. And we're rolling. What's up, John? How are you doing? Hi, Travis. Great to be with you. Yes, with a name like John Turner, I feel like you could be, you could fit right in with these pilgrims. Well, yeah, well, there was a John Turner on the Mayflower, but he and his sons didn't survive the first winter. So I can't claim descent uh, from him, unfortunately. That would really help my cachet as a, you know, historian of Plymouth Colony. Yeah, that would look real good on the book jacket. Um. Well, I mean, let's just dive in. I mean, first of all, this is crazy to me. I've been researching this, that this was only 400 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you think about it, that's, that's, a, that's an enormous chunk of time. You know, if you went back 400 years farther, right, that would be 1220. You'd be in smack dab in the middle of the Middle Ages. And people tend to think about the United States as a young country that, um, you know, obviously hasn't even been in existence for 250 years. But the Pilgrims only take us, you know, that only takes us back 400 years. So it's, um, you know, still a pretty short breadth of human history. Yeah, it's just remarkable because I don't, I don't know. I've been learning about other, you know, Mayan civilization and stuff like that. And it's, this is just 400 years ago. It's just I don't know. I'm, I'm getting held up on that. It just blows my mind. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's dive into this. So uh, first of all, your book, congrats on your book. Um, it's called, they knew they were pilgrims, uh, Plymouth colony and the contest for American Liberty. So why, why title it? They knew they were pilgrims. So that comes from a quote, uh, from William Bradford's history of Plymouth colony. Bradford became uh, the governor of Plymouth Colony uh, sort of toward the end of the first winter when everything was a big disaster. And he wrote uh, a year-by-year history of the colony. And that phrase, they knew they were pilgrims, it's from a spot in the history when he's describing the pilgrims' departure from the Netherlands. They were in the Netherlands uh, prior to going, uh, coming to the new world. And his, the context is these people weren't sure 
where their earthly destination would be, and they weren't sure whether things would go well uh, for them or not. Uh, but they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on these things, but lifted their eyes up to the heavens, uh, which would be their eventual uh, destination. So by that, he simply meant they were pilgrims on a spiritual journey uh, that included their time on earth, but would ultimately uh, conclude uh, with um, their passage to the presence of God uh, in heaven. And they became known as the pilgrims in the early 19th century. So about 200 years ago, Americans started referring to this group of colonists as the pilgrims. Okay. Uh, They didn't call themselves that. Um, As far as they were concerned, the New Testament um, essentially used that label of pilgrim for any Christian. Uh, And so they understood themselves in, in that way. Oh, okay. Interesting. And I, I mean, I embarrassed to admit this, but I had to look up, you know, exactly what the definition of pilgrim was and it, well, why don't, can you elaborate on what that is? Uh, well, what did you find? Tell, tell me, Travis. It was, uh, I don't want to mess it up here, but what it, it, it was, uh, specifically related to religion, like looking for moving somewhere because of your religious beliefs. Sure. Well, I mean, it's probably it's probably most associated with making pilgrimages to a particular religious site. Okay. So um, there are a lot of prominent shrines and cathedrals and churches in Europe and elsewhere to which people made pilgrimages. So Canterbury is a famous example in England. Uh, pilgrims from around England and elsewhere would would travel there uh, because the bones of a saint were buried there. So pilgrims are often used in that context, and you can um, you know you can still take that sort of pilgrimage in in many places in Europe and and elsewhere. Um, but the people that we know as the pilgrims in American history they were using it in in a different sense, simply um, of men and women being on this spiritual pilgrimage um, that always included uncertain times on earth. You know, these people didn't, you know, they didn't have the expectation that things would always go well for them, Mm -hmm. uh, but they had that ultimate assurance about their eternal destinies, I think. Yeah, because that's kind of, something to that's important to understand to kind of understand their why they're doing all this is that you know they these pilgrims were it's kind of crazy looking at what they did but they weren't really that afraid of of death really to leave earth because they thought they were going to go to a better you know their afterlife or whatever is that correct yeah i mean i i don't know if i would say that they absolutely didn't fear death because I think most people of faith, even if they have that belief, you know, every, people still fear things on earth sure. uh, because life on earth can be kind of scary yeah. um, and, and crazy. But, you know, like I said, I think, I think they did have that ultimate assurance. And, you know, for them, you know, they knew that founding a colony was a really risky, hazardous thing to do. I actually like to say it's one of the most foolhardy things anybody could do back in the 17th century. 
you know, if you, if you tried to start a colony somewhere, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, a third, a half or, or more of the group would die within the first year. Sure. Uh, so you, you know, you had to be motivated by something pretty strongly to do that. A lot of would be colonists were motivated by uh, the idea of getting wealthy quickly, uh, which hardly ever worked out for people. <laughs> um, and, you know, this group of colonists actually also wanted to prosper in that way. Uh, but they also had the goal of planting this religious community uh, mm-hmm. in the new world. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, who wouldn't want to make some money while you're doing it, you know? Right. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I mean, they thought, they thought if they, if they were successful um, economically, then more people uh, who might've been on the fence about their religious principles might give them another look and might join with them. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so I guess let's, let's jump back a little bit and to kind of understand their motivation. Cause they, they, are from, they start off in England, but they're unhappy being there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're unhappy because they're starting to be persecuted. And the context there is that the England uh, had a state church, the Church of England. Right. And it was illegal uh, to form other churches. And... Well, even though it was maybe not strictly enforced, you were required at least to attend church occasionally and to uh, partake of the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, um, at least on occasion. Okay. And there were, a, there were plenty of reformers in England who were unhappy with various things about the Church of England. Mainly, they thought it had been not reformed enough after the Reformation. They thought the church was still too Catholic in certain ways, that priests wore uh, sort of fancy priestly garments. Um, they used the sign of the cross. The, you know, a lot of people thought that might be idolatrous. Um, a lot of Puritan reformers, as they became known, they didn't like having a set book of prayers that ministers and priests would use uh, during a service. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some people, some men and women who got so, you know, who concluded that the, the Church of England was so corrupt that they had no choice but to withdraw from it and to form their own churches in which they could worship according to their own principles. Sure. And men and women around England, uh, you know, not a huge number of people, but some did this. Uh, they were known as separatists because right. they separated from the Church of England. And the church would periodically crack down on these people. Um, several separatists in the late 1500s were hanged. Uh, the, some of the colonists who eventually uh, came on the Mayflower. Uh, were fined, imprisoned, uh, things like that. And they knew that things could get worse. And so they fled England around 1608 and went to the Dutch Republic, the Netherlands, uh, Mm -hmm. where they had more uh, religious freedom. 
Okay. So that, that was, they first went there. They're like, we got to leave England. Let's go to the Netherlands. Um, and then what did they find there? Were they, were they able to, you know, did they find what they wanted there? Well, they, they did really in terms of religious, uh, liberty. Um, the Dutch Republic also had a public state supported church, but it gave considerably more freedom to religious minorities. So the separatists, these English separatists, they could form their own congregations there and they could basically worship without being molested um, by government and church authorities for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you'd think that should have just been the end of the story. Um, And then we wouldn't be having this conversation, which would be quite a shame, Travis. Yeah. (laughs) but after about 10 years in the city of Leiden, uh, in the Dutch Republic, they started thinking seriously about starting a colony. And there are a few reasons for that. They weren't sure that the liberty they enjoyed uh, in Leiden would go on uh, forever into the future. Um, there was the prospect of uh, renewed war between Catholic Spain and the Dutch Republic. Uh, that could have been a big problem. And um, also, they were unhappy with other aspects of their lives in Leiden. Um, most of these people had been farmers, um, in a few cases, um, things like grocers or printers. And in the Dutch Republic, they were most, mostly thrown into um, various jobs in the cloth industry, uh, industries of the Dutch Republic. It was really hard work. Uh, They felt like they were growing old quickly. Okay. And they also didn't want their children to grow up uh, being Dutch rather than English. Um, They were worried that their children would drift away from their their own church and would just sort of assimilate into Dutch society. Right. And so they started, you know, they started thinking about um, leaving. Um, couldn't go back to England. And, you know, they contemplated a number of possibilities. Going to Central South America uh, was one possibility. Thought about going uh, under Dutch auspices uh, to what eventually became the area around New York. Um, Got a patent from the Virginia company that had founded Jamestown and other settlements in Virginia. Yeah. And so their initial plan was to go to what they considered Northern Virginia. I live in what's Northern Virginia today. They met um, instead up by the Hudson River. Um, And when they eventually crossed the Atlantic, they got a bit off course and ended up uh, basically encountering uh, the eastern shore of Cape Cod. Right, okay. And so that's that's Plymouth. So, yeah, basically, they they tried, once they hit Cape Cod, they tried to, um, they, they knew essentially roughly where they were. They tried to head to the south. Um, it's kind of hazardous navigating around there. So they ended up sailing around the tip of Cape Cod, anchoring, exploring the area, and then settled at what became the town of Plymouth. Okay. Um, in southeast, what is now southeastern Massachusetts. Right. Okay. So they're kind of like, well, we missed it, but uh, I guess that's right. good enough here. 
Well, you gotta gotta make the best of it. Um, I mean, almost the worst thing for them is they um, it took them, you know, some details in the story, but it took them a long time to get going. From um, they re- they returned to England simply um, sort of as a staging area for the departure okay. um, to what would have been Northern Virginia. It took them a long time to get organized. Uh, they originally had two ships. Uh, one of them leaked so much that it had to be abandoned. So it took them a long time to really leave, and they didn't leave until early September. So they didn't get to Cape Cod until it was November. And so it's essentially already winter sure. uh, back then before global warming. And yeah. so that that is sort of a disastrous situation to just uh, show up on uh, in, you know, New England, um, with the onset of winter, that is, that was really, um, created circumstances in which, uh, they were going to have a very rough first winter. Yeah, no, I can imagine you get there. Great. We're here, but damn, it's cold. Um, right. And so that, that was the journey on the Mayflower that we've all learned about and heard about, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and we mentioned this before, but you 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 asked me to. There there was dogs on the Mayflower. Well, we were talking about we were talking about our respective dogs. So yeah, there were two dogs on the Mayflower: a mastiff, which is a huge dog, um, which I um, yeah I've actually never thought about the dogs too much, but right. I'm pretty sure they you know they wanted that um, as protection. You know that would be a powerful powerful animal uh, to have, and then a spaniel. Um, you know, I think they had, they probably had chickens, might've had pigs. They didn't get livestock until a few years uh, later. Okay. But you can imagine, um, there were 100 and, 102 passengers on the Mayflower, which wasn't an enormous ship. Um, imagine those people and some animals below decks for eight weeks. Uh, it would simply have been a noxious environment. But despite that, um, one crew member and one passenger died on the journey, uh, which for early 17th century standards, you know, is a pretty successful uh, crossing. Um, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I feel like, you know, at least one person dies on every carnival cruise today anyway, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess in the age of coronavirus, I'd rather be a passenger on the Mayflower than on a modern day cruise ship. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's a little dark. We shouldn't talk about that. But okay, so no, this is great. This is, you know, this is kind of the story we've all heard. Um, and then so what? uh, I mean, did they really know? Okay, well, first of all, there is Jamestown has already been established in, in North America. And that's they're from England, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And they, they came over mostly for financial to, to, you know, get rich, I guess. Yeah. I mean, hoping to find gold. Um, Jamestown was established in 1607. Um, you know, you can see one main difference between the, the two colonies. Jamestown at first is all men. Um, so these are folks who are looking to get rich quickly and get back to England as soon as possible. Now, oh, okay. a very high percentage of the early Jamestown settlers die. Um, and then eventually other men and then women come over. Uh, Mayflower includes families from the start. Um, 
And, but yeah, I don't know. I think you were going somewhere with the question. I won't. Well, I know. Well, that was just kind of, I mean, I, I don't remember if I had learned that, but I, I don't know. I just had the perception that the colonists of Plymouth were like, were the first kind of guys to come over to North America. But then, you know, there was another, there were guys here 13 years before that from England. Yeah. So, you know, I'm located in Virginia and I think Virginians have a certain amount of pilgrim envy that, you know, why did the pilgrims get so much attention? They weren't first. But I I think that's because eventually um, Americans sort of latched on to the pilgrim story as, I don't know, the best way of putting it, maybe, you know, the nicer way to begin the story of American history. Um, You have people coming for religious liberty rather than to try to get rich. Uh, In Jamestown, there is violent conflict with the natives almost from the start. Um, And, you know, things quickly devolve into uh, warfare and massacres. Uh, In Plymouth, you know, the... You know, the crux of the traditional Thanksgiving story is two people deciding to make peace and eat together instead of fighting each other. And so if you want a more optimistic version of of American origins that you might feel better about, Plymouth um, and the Pilgrims and the Mayflower, that has worked better for a lot of people than the story of Jamestown. Sure. Yeah, it sounds a lot nicer. Um, yeah, so let's dive into that a bit. What was, what was kind of like their first months or their first year when the, uh, Plymouth colonists got there? What were, what were they doing? What were they encountering? Sure. So, I mean, they, they essentially tromped around Cape Cod for a few weeks, decided that Cape Cod was not the best place to establish a settlement. Um, not you know, not great sources of fresh water, um, soil in terms of agriculture didn't look as promising. Mm -hmm. So they scout around and end up, uh, settling at Plymouth and they, they get the name off of a map, um, of New England that, that had been published a few years earlier. One of the interesting things about Plymouth is that it had been a large, uh, Wampanoag uh, native settlement called Tuxet. Uh, there was a devastating epidemic that afflicted a number of the native peoples of uh, southern New England in the few years before the pilgrims came. So when they came ashore at what they called Plymouth, they were basically walking into a ghost town that had been depopulated by this epidemic. Wow. Um, And so they could see abandoned cornfields. They could see abandoned houses in the area. They could see graves. The very, um, that's a, it's a, that's sort of a grim, um, thing to see. I think many of them concluded that, you know, this, this was sort of the hand of God in preparing a place for them, uh, to settle. Hmm. Um, and so they settle there, um, Throughout the, the, you know, these really couple of months, most of the people are still living on the ship. Uh, It doesn't just drop them off. It sort of hangs around until the spring. Mm -hmm. And by December, people are are starting to get sick. 
Uh, it's probably mostly scurvy and malnutrition and exposure. And then in January, February, and March, as they're building houses, um, you know, about a dozen people are dying a month. And there are only 102 of them uh, to begin with. Yeah. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty grim first winter. Man, oh, man. Okay. I had no idea about the, you know, kind of the ghost town being there. What a sight to walk up on and, and find that stuff. But I guess, like you said, they took it as a, almost a good sign or something they could take over, huh? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you have to, you know, and that, that might sound, um, that might sound a little cruel even by our 21st century standards. But, you know, one of the things about history is recognizing that people in different times and places, they don't just think exactly the way we do, you know, they have their, they have their own way of looking at the world. And for them, you know, they very much did believe in a God of providence, of, of God directing um, the events of their own lives and the events of nations and peoples. And so what's the other explanation for why this has happened? You know, they don't understand pathogens and disease the way that we do. They can right. simply, you know, they simply hear of um, this devastating plague that afflicts um these native communities and so that's that's their best way of understanding what's uh transpired right no that makes sense when you when you frame it in that way to to try to think from their perspective um so and then what were their did they have any they they found this ghost town but did they have any early interactions with you know the native americans or the the wampanoag tribe i guess you Mm -hmm. is what you talked about uh, they they did so when they when they first started exploring Cape Cod, they would see um, Indians on occasion who would basically make themselves scarce. And one reason for that is that other um, Europeans, mostly uh, Englishmen, recently had come and sailed up and down the New England coast, and. Most of the time they wanted to trade, but there were a few uh, English ship captains who kidnapped natives um, and took them back to Europe. Nice. Uh, one of them, um, one of them had just a, in about six years earlier, had kidnapped uh, 27 Wampanoags, including some from the what became the Plymouth uh, site. Wow. Uh, and he'd taken them to Spain and sold them as slaves. So, you know, the Indians had really good reason to be wary <laughs> of uh, folks from England. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they kept pretty scarce. And um, at um, present day Eastham, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, um, a group of um, a group of natives attacked them one morning. It wasn't a very serious attack. It was more sort of a warning skirmish. Nobody was uh, seriously hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the natives, you know, they, they were thinking about how to respond. On the one hand, they knew these people were dangerous. On the other hand, it was a sort of a different looking group because of the women and children uh, who were along, right. which they probably, you know, they probably hadn't seen that before. And the Wampanoag um, sachem or chief, uh, Usamequin, 
um, you know, when he sized up the situation, you know, he knew that his people and really his leadership had been weakened by this epidemic. And so he thought instead of attacking the pilgrims, it would be much better to make peace with them and sort of recruit them as allies. Yeah. Um, because that would be, that'd be good for his people um, after, um, you know, these years of death. Right. Yeah. Do you know what the, uh, what the Wampanoag were kind of thinking of, you know, all these people dying? Did they have any idea of what was causing that? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's sort of hard because you can only get to their perspectives through the English sources at the time. Right. Um, so not, not really, except, you know, you can just imagine what we can't really imagine just how wrenching that would be as a society. You know, we might know about say the black plague in Europe, you know, say back in the 1300s with, uh, a third to half of the European population dying. That would be sort of the closest parallel. Um, just, you know, complete devastation. It's sort of remarkable that um, the, you know, the community, the native communities of this region, they really don't totally fall apart. That um, leader that I mentioned, Usamiquin, he's sort of able to maintain um, his leadership during this time. You know, the pilgrims sometimes um, tell the natives, you know, we can direct sickness, you know, like the sickness comes from God, maybe, but we can direct it where we want. Yeah. But I don't I don't know that the you know, I don't know that the natives buy that or not. Um, I mean, you you can find instances in which um, because there there really are waves of sickness that you know, hit different places throughout the 17th century. And you can, you can find examples of native communities um, embracing uh, Christianity in part because um, their traditional spiritual responses uh, to sickness and death haven't worked. And they think, well, maybe it would be good to, give the um god of the english a try sort of so you know that kind of you you kind of find that happen actually throughout history with with some frequency in in lots of different contexts but to a short answer to your question is no we really don't know exactly how they experienced um you know this wrenching uh period of their history yeah, I could imagine it. It would just be so devastating and, and scary to not really know, too. Um, okay, so this, so this, you know, the story that we're taught in grade school is kind of the, the pilgrims come over on the Mayflower and the they see the Native Americans there, and there's they're all they they make peace, and then they have the Thanksgiving. Is there any? Is there some truth to that? Um, yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, so, you know the the idea of a first Thanksgiving is, is a little bit dodgy. If you mean by that sort of a formal day of Thanksgiving that the pilgrims understood in such terms, what happens, um, and there's really only one source that documents this, 
Um, there's one letter uh, written by a Mayflower passenger wow. uh, by a man named Edward Winslow. And Winslow writes that, um, you know, after they had gotten in a good harvest in the late summer, early fall of 1621, uh, the governor of the colony decided that they should, after a more special manner, rejoice together. And so uh, he sent some men out to shoot fowl, as uh, the letter says. Uh-huh. And uh, they had a lot of success. They shot a lot of ducks, uh, geese, maybe turkey, because Bradford does mention that there were uh, turkey um, okay. uh, in, you know, in the area. And they shot enough to feed themselves for a whole week. And they had recreations. In other words, they did things to have fun, uh, including uh, firing their guns. So they probably had shooting contests of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, it's just um, the colonists. But the Wampanoags um, hear uh, the colonists firing their guns, and they send 90 men to see what's going on. Maybe, you know, they, they have made this alliance with the pilgrims. Maybe they're wanting to see if their new allies are under attack. Maybe they want to see if they're up to no good. We don't really know. Yeah. And um, when Usamequin and his men show up, um, he sends some of his men to shoot deer. They're also very successful. Game must have been very abundant uh, around there in 1621. Right. And then they feasted together for a few days. And I, you know, I think in a way it sort of cemented, cemented this alliance. And according to Winslow's letter, the, the two peoples, um, you know, in, sort of enjoyed the moment. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was, um, I, I'm sure they were still wary of each other, but you know, it was a good time uh, mm-hmm. for both sides. So that doesn't really accord with what you probably learned in elementary school. It's not as if the two peoples decided to have a Thanksgiving feast together. It sort of just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I still think it's much better to be feasting together than fighting each other. Right. Yeah. And so there, you know, there is, there is something worth holding on to out of, out of that moment. Yeah, I know that. I mean, that's, that's fairly, fairly close to the story I learned. So that's, that's nice to hear that, you know, I got some, some accuracy maybe. Um, and maybe even they ate turkey. That's awesome. Yeah. No, no cranberries or pumpkin pie though. Right. <laughs> no, no canned cranberries for them, huh? Yeah. Um, Okay, well, that's great. Uh, and then, I guess, to did, how did this kind of, you know, turn into a, a holiday then? Did it, did it happen every year after that? Or what was, what's the story on that? Uh, so the, the pilgrims, they would really not have liked the idea of having a set annual day of Thanksgiving. Their style was, if something, if there was an unusual blessing, they would proclaim a day of Thanksgiving. People would go to church spend maybe three hours in church, um, singing psalms, praying, listening to a sermon, and then you might have a nice, nice meal afterwards. And if there was a military victory, that would be a reason to have a day of Thanksgiving. 
there'd been a big conflict in the church and it, it was resolved, you might have a day of thanksgiving. It didn't occur uh, to the pilgrims that this harvest celebration in 1621 was a particularly of significance in a way that should be commemorated uh, mm-hmm. that way. And it's really not until the mid-19th century that Americans start thinking of this as a first Thanksgiving, using that name to describe it and linking it uh, to the uh, pilgrims. You can certainly find with increasing frequency a late November day of Thanksgiving uh, in the early United States. Uh, George Washington, um, in his first year as president, he proclaims the day of Thanksgiving. I think it's on the fourth Thursday of November, but at least it's around then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has nothing to do with the pilgrims. It's just that Americans should thank God for the establishment of their country and their victory in you know, the um, recent war against the British. Um, but then over time, um, you know, the, this idea of a first Thanksgiving um, linked to the pilgrims becomes um, attractive, not just to New Englanders, but, you know, to Americans as a whole. Okay, that makes sense how it just kind of evolved into, into what it is. Um, okay. So the, so the, the, the colonists are kind of there. It seems like have they, once they've kind of gotten through that first year and they've, they have this, this peace treaty, um, with the Wampanoag is, are they starting to, um, succeed a little bit to prosper? Um, you know, Plymouth, um, Plymouth is not a rip roaring, uh, success. Um, they sort of do. Okay. Yeah. There's some other, uh, boatloads of, of people who join the colony. Um, they're basically, you know, they went, um, they were able to go because they got backing from some English investors and those investors expected them to send over furs, mostly beaver, Mm. um, and sort of, Eventually, after seven years, the settlers and the investors were supposed to divvy up uh, the profits. But after seven years, there weren't any profits. And um, things in terms of the fur trade got a little bit better in the 1630s, so maybe about a dozen years after the uh, Mayflower. Uh, but, you know, Plymouth, Plymouth doesn't really become, you know, does, doesn't enjoy fabulous prosperity. Um, in fact, a few years a few years later, uh, some of the colonists um, sail north to what's now Boston, and they see that region around the Charles uh, River there, and think, well, maybe we should have settled up this way. Uh, you know, the the land down around Plymouth and Cape Cod, it's not super fertile. Um, and Plymouth, Plymouth remains its own colony for 70 years or so until 1691. And it really ends up being surrounded by, um, larger, um, and more prosperous colonies. Massachusetts Bay is the colony to its north. And then Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, to its west. 
Plymouth remains, you know, relatively, relatively small, um, middling prosperity. And this doesn't sound too, it doesn't sound too exciting. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not an easy, easy path, um, in terms of developing, uh, the colony. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, that's understandable. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, hard as hell to do that. I can't do it. Yeah. Um, and then, so, you know, so the, the reason they really came was kind of for their religious liberties. Um, were they, did they find what they were looking for in terms of that? Well, they did. Um, and so I think it's, it's worth, uh, um, to take just a little bit of time and think about what religious liberty or Christian liberty, as they probably would have called it, meant to these people. It didn't mean that they wanted to found uh, a colony in which there would be religious liberty for any religious options. Uh, They wanted to found a colony in which they could establish at first one church and then churches according to their principles. Okay. Um, You know, and that's pretty common in the 17th century. Most Europeans think uh, there should be one established uh, religious option. Um, And they disagree about how much toleration should be extended to heretics, basically, you know, those who aren't going along uh, with the majority. And Plymouth actually takes sort of a middle-of-the-road approach. You know, they don't force anyone uh, to join their church. In fact, they wouldn't have wanted anyone to join their church necessarily, not unless they were, you know, well-qualified to do so. Right. It wasn't like an all-comers sort of membership policy. Um, And so there's a lot of conflict when folks with other religious principles uh, come to Plymouth, Uh, whether those others were Baptists, um, Church of England, uh, or Quakers. There's a ton of conflict with Quakers. Uh, Massachusetts hanged uh, four Quakers in the late 1650s and early uh, 1660s. And Plymouth persecuted them as well, but not as severely. So if you think about the 17th century, you you have uh, Rhode Island, which is established by a man named Roger Williams, who was basically a dissenter in both Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth. And Williams really does believe in liberty for all. No state church, people can worship um, as they like. That doesn't mean he liked, it doesn't mean he liked all of them, but basically he would leave people alone. Sure. Massachusetts Bay had a pretty strict church establishment and Plymouth was sort of, sort of in the middle of those two um, approaches. Okay. So they... Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of the irony is that they they left because they wanted to practice their what they thought was correct. But then I don't know, it's just from my perspective, I guess, in, in, you know, today's terms, it's just so ironic that they would leave and do essentially the same thing that they were leaving for. Yeah. And many, many people pointed out that irony at the time. Um, Most of those people uh, would have wanted to persecute them, Uh, you know, like. Not a lot of people were okay with, um, 
you know, the later American ideal of complete separation between church and state and uh, more or less, you know, complete religious freedom. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, they were hypocritical, but they never had said we want to establish, you know, a place where you can have a bunch of different churches. They basically wanted to transplant their church um, from the Dutch Republic to a colony. And for them, that would preserve their Christian liberty. That's really what they wanted. Um, And then other folks start showing up. Or actually, some of the passengers on the Mayflower even had different points of view. They were were sort of along for the ride. Um, They didn't necessarily have the exact same religious principles. And so, yeah, necessarily, you get get a lot of conflict um, along the way. Yeah, it seems almost inevitable that you would have conflict with that. But but their thought was just, you know, well, we just want to do our thing. So we're going to go and have our thing here. But it's only for us, right. kind of. Nobody, you, we're not going to be letting other people in. It's just us here. That's what we do. Yeah, I mean, and so they would sort of be willing to let other people in as long as they sort of kept their mouths shut about alternative religious beliefs. Um, you know, the, and the crazy thing is that by the standards of the early 1600s, they're actually pretty, you know, they, they permit a fair amount of toleration. So hmm. most of the time they don't make people attend church. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, they, you know, you could, if you showed up with a different point of view and just sort of lived on the margins somewhere in Plymouth Colony, you could kind of do your own thing and sort of be left uh, to yourself. But if you wanted to walk down uh, the streets of Plymouth and start telling people that um, the town of Plymouth's minister has it all wrong, or you wanted to start your own religious meeting, well, that, you know, you, you couldn't do that. And yeah. you quickly, you quickly were going to get into trouble. And a lot of the uh, other groups that I mentioned, especially the Quakers, that was their M.O., they would show up places and like publicly denounce every, you know, the other churches and other ministers. And, um, you know, we have the idea today of Quakers sitting around in silence and like, well, why would anybody persecute them? But back in the 1650s, 1660s, they weren't very silent. And so they quickly got into a lot of hot water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, it's kind of fair, you know, I can understand their perspective where, you know, just, you can live here, but just kind of keep quiet. But once you start yelling in the streets, then that's, you know, get the hell out of here. So that is, that is more, more or less the approach, which that doesn't accord with what Americans, most Americans today think of about the pilgrims, because Americans yeah. think of the pilgrims as um, people who came for religious liberty. But they, um, you know, we tend to put that in, you know, our own terms rather than think about what this meant back then. Yeah. Yeah. That is important to kind of, to try to get into the mindset and beliefs and motivations of, of them back then. So that's, that's great that we're kind of diving into that. I appreciate that. And that's also something that is not, I feel like it wasn't impressed upon me was the importance of 
the motivation for these the colonists and for really Plymouth and everything was so motivated by uh, religious liberty and and religion. I didn't realize that that had so much to do with the story, but that's that's really the driving force, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, as I said, they you know they wanted they did want more prosperity than they'd had in the Dutch Republic. Okay. So um, Winslow, the same passenger who wrote that account of Thanksgiving that I mentioned, he talked about his desire for Plymouth to be a a place where religion and profit jumped together. Those were his words. Uh, But there's no question that their understanding of Christian liberty was absolutely um, of prime importance to the very reason why this colony got started. I mean, if they, if they had not had those complaints about the Church of England, if they hadn't separated from it, they hadn't been persecuted for it, these were not the sort of individuals uh, who were going to leave England to start a colony. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they would have simply lived out their lives in their English towns and villages, and you, know, you and I would not have heard of these folks. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, okay. And then, can, so I'm, I'm intrigued by the, uh, kind of the, the interactions with, you know, the native Americans there and everything. So they, they initially had the, you know, kind of the peace treaty with the, the Wampanoag, but did, did those relationships start to erode over time? So, yeah, they did, as you can imagine. Um, so, you know, the Wampanoag Sachem Usamequin, who forms this alliance with the pilgrims. So he and, you know, his most immediate people, they live about 40 miles to the west of Plymouth. So if you think about it from his perspective, these hundred or so um, Englishmen, men and women um, settling at this depopulated place um, that they call Plymouth, that's not much of a threat to him. Yeah, sure. And, you know, why would he have foreseen that 20 years later, you know, there would be 20,000 English settlers in New England? You know, that that would have been just unimaginable to him. So during the early period of Plymouth Colony, that um, Wampanoag-English alliance really works for both sides. Uh, The Plymouth colonists, they do throw their weight around a bit in the region, um, more so against other native peoples to the north. And if anything, that probably strengthens the uh, position of the Wampanoag um, vis-a-vis their traditional enemies. Mm -hmm. But then what happens, especially... um, couple of decades down the road is you get large, very large numbers of English settlers coming, not, not first and foremost to Plymouth, although some come to Plymouth, but coming to Massachusetts Bay and then Connecticut. And so the English population uh, starts to expand quickly and over time really encroach on Wampanoag communities. Uh, First, sort of heading west toward Rhode Island, but then also east uh, onto Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. And that totally changes this relationship. 
um, it quickly becomes apparent that the English no longer uh, feel any need uh, to treat the Wampanoags with respect. Um, they desire more and more land. Um, you know, there are all sorts of deeds of land purchases, which makes everything sort of seem on the up and up. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of coercion, confusion, and swindling, I think, in some of those land purchases. Sure. So, you know, 40 years or so uh, after the establishment of the colony, um, you know, this alliance is seriously fraying. And then Lusimiquin's son, Medicom, whom the English call Philip, uh, he really revolts um, against Plymouth and against the English more generally in the 1670s. And it leads to an extremely devastating war, um, most commonly called King Philip's War. Yeah. And that starts in 1675. And it's it's pretty devastating, actually, for a lot of English uh, communities uh, all across New England. Uh, There's a lot of communities that are burned, um, uh, attacked. Uh, But in the end, the English prevail, partly because some of the Indians side with them. Hmm. And so it it ends up being um, just almost as bad as that those years uh, of the epidemic that we talked about earlier, you know, for some of those Wampanoag communities, especially in the Western part of Plymouth, you know, they are conquered. uh, They are enslaved. They are in some cases shipped out of new England and sold across the ocean. Uh, So it's sort of a, it's it's sort of a dismal and dreary end uh, to that story. Yeah. So why why you mentioned that some of them would some of the Native Americans would join the the colonists the English why was that just kind of as a you know better do that than than die essentially I think sometimes yes um, there were you know there were certainly Wampanoag communities by that point that had uh, embraced Christianity and I think that did actually create some you know connection uh with the english generally though it is those those um wampanoag communities that are closer um to english settlements and probably have had the squeeze put on them Mm. um you, you know talking about wampanoag communities at this time it's not it's not like talking about the the nation state of england you know, it's it is actually sort of a loose confederation, and so you have different communities certainly pursuing their own uh, self interest and affiliations. So that's, that's that's not a great answer to your question. I, I think you're probably actually hit on it. You know, um, you know, maybe it's to our advantage to side uh, side with the English, and the English are keeping really pretty close tabs on those communities that are closer to Plymouth and their other large towns. So you're right. There's sort of limited, limited choices. Yeah, no, I, well, I can imagine it just, it, it seems logical that that's what it would sort of be. Um, and then how was the, were there, I'm just curious on, on like a practical level, kind of the, how did communication work between, you know, like the Wampanoag and the, in English? So that's a great question. So 
One thing you might have heard about in uh, elementary school, you might have heard about Squanto, um, who's famous for helping uh, the Plymouth colonists learn how best to fertilize their crops. So Squanto, uh, he has one of the more remarkable stories you could hear. He's one of those Wampanoags who was kidnapped uh, in 1614 and taken to Spain to be sold as a slave. Uh, He was freed, apparently due to the intervention of um, some priests, some Catholic priests in Spain, somehow made his way to England. We don't really know how. Um, Went to Newfoundland. Uh, I think he wanted to get back home, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ended up then going back to England. and then. and then becoming part of a venture that did take him back uh, to his community at Plymouth, by which point everybody there almost was dead. So quite, quite a story. And he's not the first, um, he's not the first uh, Native man to approach the colonists, but he's on the scene pretty early. He knows how to speak English. And so the colonists heavily rely on him and a couple of other natives who have learned English through their prior contacts with English traders and explorers. Wow. Some of the, um, some of the English colonists also learn Wampanoag. Edward Winslow, who I've mentioned a couple times, he, he can clearly communicate in the language after a couple of years. But mm-hmm. for the most part, the colonists, they prefer to rely on native uh, translators. Okay. Man, well, that, that's great to hear. Thanks for, yeah, because I, I, you would kind of assume that's what would happen. But man, that story of, so he, so uh, Squanto, just he was taught English when he was over in Spain or, or wherever. When he got back to England, I presume. Um, okay. Maybe he spoke some Spanish as well. Yeah, right. Um, so... Yeah, just just a remarkable, remarkable story. Um, and, you know, out of the 27 or so who were taken to Spain, uh, he's the only survivor uh, that we know about. The only one, uh, apparently, who was able to make it back home. Wow, crazy. And then, so, what was kind of the, the, the reason for the, the influx of, of English people coming over to North America during that time? So, you know, I'd mentioned that other folks were unhappy with the Church of England, and generally uh, they were called Puritans because they wanted to purify, uh, further purify the Church of England. There's a real crackdown on Puritans by the church in the 1630s, and that's a significant factor in prompting um, thousands of people uh, to leave during that decade. Okay. It's not the only reason, you know, by the time, you know, Plymouth has struggled along for a while, there is a sense that uh, New England is a pretty good place to go because of the ready availability of land, because mm-hmm. of the fur trade. It's always been desirable in part because of things like, not always, but it had long been uh, known as a good destination for fishing, uh, for shipbuilding, uh, and a few other things. 
So it's it's not only religion that is pushing people out of England. Uh, there's also certainly an economic attraction uh, by the 1630s as well. But you have a couple of thousand people coming over pretty much every year in the 1630s. And so wow. the English population grows quickly. The native population really steadily falls throughout the 1630s. Hundreds first because of the epidemic, but you know, then I think you know for a lot of for subsequent ep- epidemics and other reasons. So you know, you, you really just have this shift and in, in power. Yeah, and then so, what is kind of the the decline or the the I think guess thing that puts the the nail in the coffin for for Plymouth? Um, you know, what really sort of puts the nail in the coffin is, um, at, you know, they never have a, um, charter, uh, from the crown. Um, now that wasn't, you know, like an ironclad guarantee that you were going to be able to keep governing yourself, but, um, sort of there's, there's a lot of comp- complex English developments that I'll try to mention really quickly. So there's a uh, civil war in England in the 1640s, and it ends with the beheading um, of the king. And then when the monarchy is restored um, in 1660, about that time, the, the monarchy and English officials, they begin to take more of an interest in their overseas colonies. Um, There's a concern that folks in New England are not sufficiently loyal uh, to the monarchy. Um, And so there's a desire to impose sort of greater, you know, English control. And by the time you get to the 1680s, the Crown decides to invalidate the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and reorganize all of New England um, under a crown-appointed governor. There's a lot of resistance to this uh, in New England. Sure. And then after, you know, after another king is essentially overthrown, um, things get reorganized again. And those colonies that had um, charters, uh, which included Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts Bay, they sort of remained their own colonies with greater English oversight and with crown appointed governors. Mm-hmm. Plymouth had never gotten a charter uh, to sort of provide its self government with any, any sort of legality. And the crown decides to attach it to Massachusetts Bay. And, you know, there's Plymouth might have been able to stave that off if they had, like, raised enough money f- to pay um, a bribe to the right official in England. But they, they couldn't pull that off. And so they, they became part of a larger Massachusetts Bay after that. Okay, so they were just kind of absorbed into that. Exactly. Okay. Wow, man. So it's just kind of like a, like a, I don't know, a, a clerical, you know, thing. Let's just 
absorb them all together because they don't have a the proper paperwork almost. Yeah, it's it's sort it's sort of like that. And you know, for a lot of folks in Plymouth, it's it's not a massive change. Some people are upset about it. Um, actually, by that point, the Quakers and the Baptists, there are quite a few of them who sort of persevere in Plymouth, and they really don't like being attached to Massachusetts Bay because uh, Ma- the Massachusetts Bay folks are going to treat them wor- worse than Plymouth's govern- government did. Mm, right. Okay. Man, well, John, this is great. I love, I love so much the story because I feel like it's, it's something that you know I semi learned in grade school, and you know we just we heard about it a, a little for a half hour, and then we we made you know hats to wear or something. So it's fun to sure. to revisit this, you know, now that I'm a little older and hopefully a little smarter than I was in third grade, and I can you know dive into it a bit more. So I really appreciate you you coming on and sharing this and and in writing your book. It's it's great that we have it. No, thanks, Travis. I had I had a lot of fun talking about it with you. Thanks for all your good questions. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, of course. Thank you. And uh, your book is uh, "They Knew They Were Pilgrims: Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty." That is anywhere specific. We should send people to to grab that a copy of that. Uh, well, I mean, you could get it at you know the main retailer, Amazon. Uh, there's a bunch of other places you could get it. You could get it from. Uh, Pilgrim Hall in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, I'd love it if people got it there, but they could probably get it for less on Amazon. But if they got it from Pilgrim Hall, Pilgrim Hall gets a little bit of money from it. And that's, it's a really special place uh, in Plymouth. So I I recommend that. Okay. Do they have a website? Uh, They do. I could send it to you. Okay. Well, we'll have it in the link here for, uh, or in the description for people listening to, uh, to grab it from there. So, uh, well, that's great. Uh, is there anything, any, uh, I don't know, imparting words or anything you'd like to, sh- to impart on people listening about this story and the history of all this that maybe miss, you know, uh, overlooked? Not really. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess one thing I'd say is, you know, all Americans, you know, they get reminded of the pilgrims uh, every November, usually in really trite uh, ways. Um, and the actual history, you know, might not always be quite as sunny and relentlessly inspiring, but it's almost inevitably more human and I think more compelling. Um, so some of these stories that we're super familiar with, they're really worth another look so that we can learn some things uh, beneath the surface and get a sense of uh, the way folks both natives and English uh, lived and thought uh, 400 years ago. Cool. Love it. Well, thanks again, John, and uh, appreciate your time coming on and have a good one. All right. You got it. Thanks, Travis. It's done. It's over already. Can you believe it? And now you know the whole story, the truth, the real deep dive story of the Pilgrims, the Mayflower, the first Thanksgiving, Plymouth Plantation. It's a good story to to refresh on, I think. So uh, thanks for being here, sticking to the end and listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to John for being here and sharing all that info. Really appreciate that. This is the 99th episode. I'll see you in the 100th episode. Oh, but first, I'm Travis DeRose. Uh, You heard me talking as the host. Uh, You can find me on Instagram, at Trav DeRose. I'm on there. Uh, 
You can email me, Travis at curiositiness.com. Give me your thoughts, ideas, tips, feedback. Uh, ideas for new shows are always welcome and helpful, so that'd be great. And uh, now I can say it's the 99th episode. I'll see you in the next episode, episode 100. Bye.